Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Thursday, and we are joined by one of my favorite columnists, the Washington Post's Philip Bump, national correspondent for the Post, who has an upcoming book coming out out next year, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. So as a baby boomer, you're, you're going to write about our last days, huh? That's it. Yeah. I will say it, it, that it's come to that. It, 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 I mean, it, you know, it has. I, I hate to say it, but yeah, I mean, as I was writing the book, I was, I was always very sort of trepidatious and talking to people like, okay, so the baby boom is going to go away. And, you know, the people who cared the least, I, I talked to the guy who, who runs a cemetery in Brooklyn. And, you know, if, if you want to talk to someone who is very blase about the concept of death, that's who you want to talk to. But yes, it's, it's, it's always a little sort of awkward as, as a conversation started. So I want to talk about, obviously, the political news of the day. But I have to say, uh, and I don't have any particular insight into this, except that it feels like the most depressing news of the day that we are now seeing signs of the return of polio. And it's one of those things. Here we are in 2022 with the most advanced medical system in the world with vaccines easily accessible. And we're seeing a disease that we thought had been eradicated coming back. You're the numbers guy. I don't have any insight into this, sure, but I sure. guess I guess my fear is that this is one of the consequences of this new anti-science, anti-vaccine culture out there. And these ideas have, have consequences and, and perhaps deadly consequences. One thing to be anti-COVID vaccine, which I think is stupid and deadly, mm -hmm. but now we're seeing polio. What do you make of this? It seems like it's probably a function of two things. The first is that obviously the anti-vaccine movement predates COVID by a number of years. And I think that it has its roots in part in the success of vaccines, right? I mean, people were able to sort of be blasé about vaccines uh, in part because we didn't have to worry about the diseases that the vaccines are preventing because of the vaccines, right? And so, you know, something like polio, people weren't really that worried about it. And so it's easy to be like, I'm not going to get my kid vaccinated against polio because polio didn't exist <laughs> to any significant degree. And so that was one of, I think, the reasons that the anti-vaccination movement had some legs prior even to, you know, 2014, 2015, uh, certainly prior to the coronavirus pandemic. And I'm very curious, and I, I can't speak to this specifically, but I am curious if the reason that we're seeing these levels of polio that, that are being detected is simply because now we're paying more attention to the presence of viruses mm. in sewage, right? You know, so we're seeing right. a lot of these analyses of sewage because we're trying to determine what the path of the coronavirus pandemic is taking. And, you know, maybe it's simply because we're looking more, we're finding this, you know, so, okay. so I, I don't know how much cause there is for pessimism on this particular thing. Well, it's also interesting, I, and I think as a as a as a positive development, seeing the CDC acknowledging that uh, they needed to up their game, right. that they they did not uh, really, you know, a, they they were designed to deal with things like the pandemic we just went through, and they were not nimble, they were not effective, and I think it's a it's a positive sign that they're willing to say, hey, we need to we need to retool. I hope the FDA is next, but it's kind of an interesting admission for a bureaucracy as entrenched as the CDC to go, okay, we screwed up. We need to fix ourselves. I, I mean, that's, that's yeah. a positive development. It, it is. I mean, obviously I think we, we know how this song tends to go though, right? That someone who is new to a position comes in, says everything here is broken. And all the bureaucrats who've been working there for 20 years say, mm, okay, let's see how that goes. Right. You know, and then, you know, four years later, things change. So, you know, <laughs> I just had a burst of optimism. So now I'll have a burst of pessimism. We'll see how it goes. You know, hopefully that the, the damage that was done to the CDC, both from outside and inside of the course of the past two years, spurs some recognition that you know, it would be fruitful to 
to make some changes at least. Well, let's let's talk about something you wrote this week about the political fallout from the FBI search of Donald Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago. Uh, there is an emerging uh, conventional wisdom, particularly among Republicans, that this has helped Donald Trump. Uh, this has caused a rally around the flag, that it may have contributed to the magnitude of Liz Cheney's defeat. I'm hearing from Wisconsin Republicans that, that in fact, this galvanized MAGA support. So so talk to me a little bit about this. You, you wrote a piece yesterday morning that it took minutes, maybe seconds, for a consistent Republican response to emerge when the news broke the former president's Mar-a-Lago resort had been searched by the FBI, that this was an egregious political overreach by the administration of President Biden. So how did this play out and how is it playing out? So it's still fairly early. I tend to look at at polls Mm -hmm. as as a guide here, as you know. And so, you know, we're still just starting to see polls trickle in from the period after the Mar-a-Lago search. Um, But one thing that was interesting is I looked at a a YouGov poll, which looked at Donald Trump's favorability, and and I had expected to see his favorability jump, right, that that people would suddenly now look more positively at Donald Trump in the wake of this thing. You know, when I say people, I mean Republicans, obviously, since that's what we're talking about here, Uh, but it didn't. It it was flat. There was no change uh, week over week in terms of how people viewed Donald Trump. And I thought that was interesting. And it really made me think, Okay, so what, what did we see? And so I went back and I picked out, Okay, so we saw people like Ron DeSantis jump to Donald Trump's defense. We saw Mike Pence jump to Donald Trump's defense, both of which I thought were significant because these are people who want to see him beaten in 24. But they didn't. When they jumped to Donald Trump's defense, it was more of an enemy of my enemy thing. Right. It was look at what this horrible, you know, deep state is doing in essence. You know, DeSantis littering in a banana republic, as one would expect. Um, So it wasn't it wasn't that they were saying Donald Trump is right here. It was they were saying the government is wrong. Right. And so it was a defense of Donald Trump's position, but it was not about Trump. And so it preserved some independence from Trump himself, which I think is interesting. Right. And so we see this in other ways. It, it, it is essentially akin to the difference between uh, defending Trump and defending Trumpism, which is a, a divide that we've seen emerge a lot over the past year. You know, it, you know, to the extent to which you're saying Donald Trump is right versus the things Donald Trump did and advocated is right. And that's a line also that people are drawing. And I think that's not what Donald Trump wants. Uh, and of course, I don't I don't know that he even sees it that way. I think he sees anyone who's on his side is right necessarily coming to his defense. But I'm not sure that's actually how this is going to play out. Okay, I mean, in the first few days, he was absolutely giddy, and you know there were right. his you know hardcore supporters, you know, demanding that that he be named the party's nominee. So, what do you make of Laura Ingram saying on a podcast that Americans might be ready to turn the page? I think that what Ron DeSantis has done, and I'm, I'm writing a little bit about this this morning, hmm. but I, I think what Ron DeSantis has done is he has done a very good job of cutting Donald Trump out of Trumpism, right? He has huh. been, he has done a very good job of engaging in the culture war fights and not only engaging in the culture war fights, but engaging in the new culture war fights, the culture war fights of the moment, not the ones that Donald Trump uh, uh, tends to fight, which often are, are somewhat older. He's done a very good job of separating himself from Trump in that regard and, and positioning himself as the candidate who can be Trump without the Trump baggage, which is what everyone says, you know, this is this is the potential path forward for a Republican nominee. You know, something like, I, honestly, I thought less interesting than Laura Ingram's comments in which she sort of was like, eh, you know, maybe Trump has too much baggage, or Alex Jones's yesterday, in which Alex Jones just essentially said, you know, I'm for DeSantis because I'm anti-vaccine, which is very much what DeSantis has been going for. He's been, you know, sort of tiptoeing around being anti-vaccine. Uh, and, you know, he he makes enough of a case that he can present a face to, you know, more moderate voters that actually he 
you know, tried to expand the vaccine in Florida, yada, yada, yada. But he knows the signal he's sending. The signal he's sending is I am the guy who now speaks for the fringe of the Republican Party in a way that Donald Trump can't always do. Uh, and I think that he is playing that fairly well. And I think that that is a significant problem for Donald Trump in 2024. Well, if Donald Trump announces that he that he's running, you know, pre-indictment, post-indictment, whatever, how does Ron DeSantis react to that? Can right. Ron DeSantis run against a martyred Donald Trump? Is that possible in the current environment? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the the question, right? And so we go back to how did Donald Trump react to the Mar-a-Lago raid? This could have been, you know, if I am a political advisor, which thank God I'm not, you know, but if I'm a political advisor, my instinct may have been said to say to Ron DeSantis, okay, this is it. This is the moment when you say, look, this guy has too many questions. Let's see what this thing is. But what's going on with Donald Trump? Right. And that's not what DeSantis did. DeSantis said, look at these, you know, government scumbags, essentially. Right. Not to not to put, you know, unflattering words in his mouth. But that was, his, you know, he, he, he went after he went after the FBI. And so the question is, can they, and, you know, again, going back to my point, that's a differentiation between being for Trump and being anti-Trump's enemies. Is that enough? You know, if they're on the debate stage, is it enough for Ron DeSantis to turn to Donald Trump and say, I'm mad at the FBI for investigating you instead of saying, why are you being investigated all the time? Does he make that switch at some point? Does that turn people off? And I don't think we really know the answer to that question. I think we, there's a lot of rumblings, a lot of hints that, yeah, you know, even Republican voters who are pro-Trump are at some point going to be like, OK, DeSantis is good enough. Yeah, I'm worried about Trump winning in 2024. I'm going to go with DeSantis. We, we hear a lot of those rumblings. It's just not really manifesting in polling yet. So the formula is that if you're going to displace Donald Trump in the Republican Party, you have to be Trumpist. You cannot be seen as aligning yourself in any way with his enemies, which leads us to Liz Cheney, right? I mean, that that's that's right. her, you know, card, cardinal sin. So speaking right. of hopeless causes, we'll get to Liz Cheney in, in a moment, whether she's going to run a kamikaze campaign for for president. What do you make of what Mike Pence is doing? Because Mike Mike Pence is sort of tiptoeing around the same question of what can you say? So he's, of course, also criticizing the FBI raid, but he also called on his fellow Republicans to stop their attacks on the FBI and law enforcement, which, again, strikes me as not breaking with Trump, but just sort of like, you know, taking baby sidesteps. And, and he also suggested somewhat more radically that he might show up and testify before the January 6th committee. So what is what is Mike Pence doing? How is he playing his cards? My sense is that Pence is has consultants who had the instinct that I had last week, right? And the consultants are saying, okay, maybe this is the moment. And look, no one in this universe has more space to be critical of Donald Trump's, uh, you know, uh, approach to politics than, than does Mike Pence, given what happened on January 6th, right? He has all the space in the world to do this. And maybe this is the part where he is starting to to test the waters of the separation and not simply go after the FBI for being, you know, a corrupt deep state institution, but instead to say, hey, maybe the FBI has some validity in what it's doing. Maybe the January 6th committee has some validity in what it's doing. And maybe he's starting to explore and just see, okay, what's the reaction from the base? If I start to say, you know what, maybe Trump has a little bit of corruption to him, guys, let's consider that possibility, right? Um, you know, how does that play for him? I mean, look, Mike Pence is not, I think, as gifted a, a politician as he and a lot of his allies seem to think. Um, so I'm not sure. Uh, but, you know, that that may be what it's doing. And, and I do want to I do want to point something out. You, you raise this. You know, I, I mentioned this and you just mentioned this distinction between Trump and Trumpism. 
I think one of the, the the signal factor, and I say this all the time, and I and, and I and I will continue to say it, the reason that Donald Trump won in twenty sixteen is because he was the guy who was willing to say what the fringe was talking about and that the establishment wouldn't talk about because it was ridiculous. He was willing to say it. Trump was willing to be the voice of the fringe. He was willing to pair it back to the base, what, what they were hearing in Breitbart and what they're hearing on Fox News in a way that the establishment wouldn't, right? And that has been his success ever since. He's been he's been engaging and rallying the, the far right of the Republican Party that didn't feel like they had a voice justifiably uh, in politics and that's what DeSantis is doing as well. He's really playing to that same far right. And he is in the same way that Donald Trump was Breitbart to the establishment's Fox News in 2016. Now, <laughs> Breitbart is, you know, almost establishment-esque to some extent. And Ron DeSantis is, is Infowars, right? I mean, so it is it is this constant, okay, I'm going to engage where the where this this most fervent element of the base is. And we call that Trumpism, but it's, you know, really just the fringe and engaging the fringe has proven to be a successful strategy uh, for winning elections. And I, and I think that's what DeSantis is doing. I think that is exactly correct. I think that's an exactly uh, correct analysis, which then also raises the question. I mean, because it, very clearly the fringe has now become the mainstream, the dominant force in the Republican Party. So what happened to for lack of a better term, normal Republicans, the the Republicans who went along with with MAGA world, but but are not really part of the fringe. I, I mean, how do you read this uh, this long march of uh, Trumpist candidates who have been winning in the primaries and the absolute uh, decimation of of Liz Cheney? It would certainly suggest that that the anti-Trump forces in the Republican Party have been pummeled, routed, and defeated <laughs> completely. Right. But there still are people out there who are willing to make the bargain, whatever term you want to say, but but not necessarily the, the, the Breitbart, Alex Jones, Fox News, fire breathers. Right. Where are they at the moment? It seems to me, and this is, this is something that I've been sort of noodling over the past couple of days, but it seems to me that there is a deal that was made during Trump's presidency that is well articulated, I think holds sort of more broadly. And that is things are pretty good for me. And therefore I'm less concerned about these outsider perimeter elements that are getting abused or hassled. I can tune that out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like things are going well for me. Like I get it. I wish you wouldn't say those things, but I'm not affected by that. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to worry about what's happening with trans people. I'm not going to worry about what's happening with, you know, gay teachers in Florida. I'm not going to worry about what's happening, you know, with police stops. I'm not, you know, there are all these things that don't affect me. And this is why, and you know, going back to last week, this is why I thought it was fascinating that the immediate response to what happened to Mar-a-Lago was defund the FBI. Because all of a sudden, that and the combination of, you know, increasing funding for the IRS, all of a sudden, these were law enforcement uh, people who were targeting things that actually affected Republican voters, right? So, you know, when Marjorie Taylor Greene says defund the FBI, when they're talking about how the IRS says all the, all of a sudden, Republicans are saying, wait, wait, wait a minute. We, you, know, you know, we're concerned about how law enforcement is going to be applied against us, and we don't like that. Which is, of course, the exact argument of the Black Lives Matter movement. <laughs> the Black Lives Matter movement was black people saying, look, we don't like how law enforcement is being applied to us here. And because it didn't affect a lot of those Republican voters, they're like, you know, what, what are you talking about? We can't defund the police, yada, yada, yada. Then all of a sudden you get this IRS funding, particularly, and secondarily, this, uh, the FBI in Mar-a-Lago. That, that's what I'm talking about, right? And so when we talk about someone like Ron DeSantis and all of these things he does to appeal to the fringe and target these communities that are very small parts of the population, don't touch a lot of people. 
in his core base, it's easy for them to say, you know what? I like the restaurants are open. I like that my kids don't have to wear masks in school. You know, I don't love this stuff about what's happening with trans people and, you know, some of his more fun. I don't like Christina Pushaw or whatever it happens to be. But things are going pretty well for me. And, you know, I think it serves a second term as governor. That's how it works. So let's go to those two issues, because there's kind of a split screen there. Um, The defund the FBI and the attack on the 80,000 plus uh, alleged IRS agents that are going to be hired. Defund the FBI seems to be just a gobsmackingly stupid counterproductive issue for Republicans. On the other hand, going after the IRS seems like it would very much appeal to Republican voters. How are Republicans reacting to defund the FBI, which seems like a caricature of their reaction to defund the police? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's not as though Kevin McCarthy is standing up saying we got to pull all FBI funding. So, you know, there's, they're not going to pass a bill that does that. It is absolutely a rhetorical device. You know, my point was that it spoke to how this was now seen as a threat to a group of people who otherwise wasn't threatened by law enforcement. Right. So so that's that's what I'm drawing to. Defund the FBI is not real. It is Marjorie Taylor Greene doing her Marjorie Taylor Greene thing and trying to get attention and Lauren Boebert and so on and so forth. Yes, that is true. It is, however, also true that a lot of Republicans feel as though the FBI has been unfairly targeting Republicans and Donald Trump, you know, they're hearing that literally every night on Tucker Carlson's show. You know, there, there, there is a real antipathy, if not antagonism, oh, yeah. toward the FBI, obviously. The IRS is, in fact, different. Yeah, you get a lot of voices who are like, why, do the, why does the IRS need all these people? No one wants to be audited, right? Like, I get it. Like, I don't want to be audited. Like, I understand that. There is, of course, been also a lot of misinformation about what those people are going to be doing, this, the time frame over which they'll be hired. It got conflated with this job posting someone dug up in which, you know, the IRS is hiring police officers because they have a law enforcement arm. And all of a sudden that became, you know, oh, now they're hiring 87,000 people with guns. And it's like, well, that's not actually what's happening, right? You know, and so there is this conflation of misinformation as well, which I think doesn't help anything. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, obviously Republicans think that's a better issue to run on because they keep mentioning it constantly. You know, what about these auditors? And, you know, the ex- to the extent to which that pans out as true remains to be seen. But I understand why that is a, is a, a robust political play. This may seem like a slight digression here, but I thought it was very interesting that Dan Crenshaw, who is pretty Trumpist, we know has been taking shots at Marjorie Taylor Greene over this defund the FBI issue. And again, this is one of the things that doesn't show up in polling necessarily, but there are real splits. And I'm not talking about never Trump at all here. I'm talking about real splits in the Republican Party where they're, they're, you can just feel the tensions building. Again, I don't know how it manifests itself, but at some point you get the sense that if you know, when Trump leaves, when there is that one unifying, you know, demanding litmus test party line that you must adhere to, there's going to be some pretty dramatic fissures in this party. It feels like, you know, tensions building, 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 held down. And at some point they're going to break out and it won't necessarily be pro-Trump, anti-Trump. There's a, there's a lot going on. Do you, you follow what I'm saying here? I mean, yeah. um, I, I did. And I think, you know, Dan Crenshaw versus Marjorie Taylor Greene would be a pretty good example of that. Yeah, I mean, I think Crenshaw's interesting, right? I, I mean, you described him as Trumpist, which I think is a little unfair. I mean, he's been he's been critical of Trump, and I think is he's he's almost more McCarthyist, meaning Kevin, not Eugene, obviously not Eugene, the <laughs> uh, meaning Joe was the name I failed to grasp. There, no no offense to our Wisconsin yeah. friends, but the point is, he is more. A person who understands the value of talking the Trump language, even if he doesn't necessarily support Trump. You know, he's a Trump versus Trumpist sort of guy. Uh, you know, he, he is he is Trumpist in the sense of Trumpism, not in the sense of Trump. If you fair, will. fair, that's yeah. very very complicated. Yeah. Anyway, no, no, but but this goes back to the point I was making. 
about how you can continue to appeal to the fringe and play to the fringe and play the culture war fights and then still sit back and, you know, have people be like, yeah, I don't really love that, but things are going okay. That that's continues to be the play. It's just that the center has shifted. Right. And so the center in 2014 was, uh, you know, you had Mitch McConnell and so on and so forth. And then you had the, the, the fringe that was agitating and they tried to corral it. And then Donald Trump brought the fringe and made that the center. But now there's still this other fringe. And so you have Crenshaw at the new center and Green at the new fringe, whereas, you know, someone who is holding every single position that Crenshaw does and, you know, made the claims that he made would have been the fringe in 2014. Now he's more close to the center and they're now battling this new fringe. And then that's the fringe that DeSantis is very carefully trying to appeal to with his various machinations. Well, I want to talk about something else that you wrote about. And and one of the problems in the era that we live in is that there's so much that you have to remember, that you have to deal with. The zone is flooded with with scandals and controversies and, and, and bullshit that it's easy to lose track. So th- I, th- I thought this was very valuable that you went back to the whole Russia hoax hoax issue that basically, you know, in, in the days since the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago as part of that investigation, you wrote the the assertion that the Russia investigation was a hoax has emerged repeatedly. And this is really part of the template to understand how Republicans are reacting to this. They're saying they're doing this again. They accused Trump of all of these terrible things that uh, about which he was completely exonerated. You remind us, though, that despite the fact that Trump has called this a hoax, that there was something there. Right. Let's rewind the tape a little bit to the Russia hoax hoax thing. I'm very glad you raised this because I think it is important for this to be combated. And I've grown increasingly convinced that it's important for us to combat this idea that the Russia investigation was a hoax. Uh, so, yeah, so I wrote a piece yesterday that that goes through it and it essentially walks through three different factors. The first is that even before the election, we knew that Russia was up to something and we knew that there were weird ties between Donald Trump and Russia. That is established, right? His campaign manager worked for pro-Russian um, politicians in Ukraine. His He had an advisor who went to Moscow and gave an anti-U.S. speech that was reported at the time in July 2016. The DNC was hacked. It was known to have been by Russians in June of 2016. Michael Flynn was having dinner with Putin in December 2015. There are all these things that we knew about coming into the election, that were all reasons why, as the government quietly behind the scenes was learning more about what Russia was doing, when they learned behind the scenes that an advisor to Trump's campaign had told someone the Russians had dirt on Hillary Clinton, and then that dirt became public, there were lots of reasons why the FBI could be like, okay, something's weird here. And that by itself, that the investigation was well predicated, that there was good reason to believe that this should be investigated, that the investigation was investigated by the inspector general and the inspector general said, yeah, this made sense to move forward on as an investigation that by itself undercuts the entirety of the way that the Russia hoax, so to speak, has been used in defense of Donald Trump over the past 10 days, because the entire idea is the FBI went after him unfairly and it's been repeatedly established. They went after him completely fairly. And even if they hadn't found a single thing that was valid to investigate these things based on what they knew privately and what was already known publicly. But then we go a step further, which is they found stuff, right? They found that Paul Manafort was passing campaign data to a guy who a bipartisan Senate panel said was tied to Russian intelligence. That by itself, right? I mean, not to mention Trump Tower meeting, not to mention Roger Stone's weirdness with WikiLeaks, not to mention all these other things. Yes, it is the case that Mueller in his final report said, look, man, we can't prove collusion because here's the standard we use. 
But we found evidence of these things that Bill Barr tried to whitewash away, right? Like, we know these things. But because the narrative is gone, oh, it's all based on this dossier. Or more recently, oh, it's all Hillary Clinton made this stuff up, which is just nonsense and easily debunked. But because that's what people hear, they hear this on Fox and they hear it on Trump and they hear it and they hear it and they hear it. And they don't hear this conversation. They don't hear responsible people pushing back and saying, no, you've got it wrong. This has been set in stone. Well, again, this is the asymmetry because in order to to make the case that you're making right now, you have to go through a lot of detail. You have to remember a lot of things. There's a certain complexity to it. It is much easier to say they didn't come up with anything. It was a hoax. The Mueller report detailed, you know, at, at, at great length, both what they found and Trump's rather aggressive efforts to obstruct justice, which apparently worked. That's a much bigger burden. But I mean, just the one detail that that you and I don't want to just r- rush over it, the one detail, Paul Manafort was running the Trump campaign. He was in mid-August of 2016 forced to resign from the Trump campaign because of his ties to Russia-linked Ukrainian politicians. And as you point out, we knew that he had passed along polling data to someone very close to Vladimir Putin. I mean, these things alone are mind-blowing, especially given the complete denial. So in real time, we knew a lot, as you point out, in September of, of 2016, the Washington Post reported that Russia was trying to actively influence American politics by October. The government was was officially confirming that that was actually part of the deluge of news um the day the access hollywood tape broke and kind of got buried by that um and then of course we learned a lot more after that right that as you point out there's a lot that we didn't know by election day on 2016 i mean the extent of russian actors you know the what had been going on but just briefly so if we were sitting here talking with trump defenders Sure. And not just MAGA heads, but, you know, anti-anti-Trump journalists, they would say, yeah, but the Steele dossier, it was all bullshit. And, you know, it came from Hillary Clinton. So, you know, the the, the fruit of the rotten tree. Right. I right. mean, it's just there's there was nothing there. What was in retrospect, what was the role of the dossier and what what is your sure. take on the dossier? It's a good question. And you're right. I mean, if, if I were a Molly Hemingway, we're having this discussion, yeah. it definitely go in a different direction. You know, part of it, you said that, you know, people have to hear about this. And people, the fundamental issue is people have to care. People have to care as to whether or not they're correct in their assessments of these things. And a lot of people simply don't care. They just take Trump's word for it. Right. So the Steele's dossier. I wrote a critical piece on the Steele dossier in 2017. I went through it. I read each of the reports. I pointed out all the things that didn't really make sense and had no, you know, that were not obviously proven, you know, when Michael Cohen came out and vehemently denied that he had traveled to Prague, like that was telling, you know, I mean, because, you know, that was one of the very few vehement denials we actually saw from Trump's team. There are all these red flags about the Steele dossier. But at the end of the day, what the, the, the path that the Steele dossier took to importance is not that it was itself important beyond influencing a lot of anti-Trump people to make a lot of wild claims uh, in, in media, mostly in opinion pieces, um, but also you know just generally on social media and in public conversations. The Steele dossier had an important role there. But in terms of the actual investigation, it didn't. And what, what, the, what critics of the investigation center on is that the Steele dossier was one of the elements used to obtain a FISA warrant against this guy, Carter Page, who was an advisor to the Trump campaign uh, in October of 2016, right? That's what they really center on. And since the Steele dossier was downstream from Hillary Clinton's campaign and the DNC hiring this particular law firm, she gets the blame for it. Ergo, Hillary Clinton started the Russia probe. 
But we know it's not the case that the Russia probe was started by this field last year. We know what it was started by. We know that the probe was already underway by the time the FBI actually got uh, the details of the Steele dossier. Most of the Steele dossier hadn't even been written by the time uh, that the actual Russia probe was underway. Uh, Carter Page, you know, was someone who was already on federal law enforcement's radar screen for having been potentially recruited as a Russian spy several years prior. He actually sat down with the FBI for an, for an interview uh, at about the same time he ended up joining Donald Trump's campaign. You know, one of the things that I elevated in the piece yesterday is Trey Gowdy, who was, you know, obviously someone who's broadly critical of Democrats, now talking head on Fox News, said at the time, look, without the dossier, there's still the Russia probe, because there was, right? <laughs> because the Russia probe had already started by the time the dossier came came to attention. But the entire point here is that it all gets synthesized down to the dossier, not because the dossier was important, but because by focusing on the dossier, they can distract from the Russia probe. That's why the dossier is important to people who are critical of the Russia probe, because it gives them a way to be critical of the Russia probe. And that's it. And they've clearly weaponized this. Uh, Okay, so let's just talk about what's happening in politics right now. And I'm not asking for a prediction because we both know how fraught predictions are. Actually, for some reason, I was flashing back on some of the things that I said and wrote back in 2016 about the impossibility of Donald Trump being elected. So we have all, you know, hard won modesty there. Sure, sure. But I'm I'm looking at the most recent generic polls. I think Morning Consult came out with another poll that's consistent with a lot of what we've been seeing that would suggest on the generic ballot that Democrats have recovered some of their deficit and may even be leading on the generic ballot, which does not mean that they're going to win the election, does not mean they're going to retain control of the House. But what do you sense is going on right now? I mean, how much of this is, is uh, you know, wish casting, um, you know, vibe type, you know, punditry versus sure. a real shift in public opinion and mood uh, over the last couple of months? What do, you, what do you sense? How do you evaluate this? Yeah, this is a difficult question. And I evaluate it in a couple of ways. The, the first is that, yes, I think that uh, there has been something that has changed, particularly since the Dobbs decision overturning Roe, right? I, I think that there has been a real energy that has emerged on the left that wasn't there. I think that, you know, I don't think the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act is something that people are really, you know, sort of got, got their hands around and really excited about. But I think that it shows that at least Biden is doing something which gives people who are sort of like, eh, about Biden a reason to be like, okay, you know what? Things aren't as bad as I thought. So I, I think there has been a shift um, in that sense. The polling's fascinating because what we're seeing right now is this really weird divergence and an unusually large divergence. It's not unusual they would diverge, but an unusually large divergence between how people look at Biden and how people look at Democrats. And so the Democrats are running about even, as you said, with Republicans in the generic ballot, where Biden is deeply unpopular. And normally a deeply unpopular president means in the midterm election that his party gets routed. Right. We saw that in 2018. In 2018, there was a similar weird divide between how people felt about the economy and how people felt about Trump. And the economy, by the, the, the metric of the economy, it seemed like the Republicans probably do OK in 2018. By the metric of popularity of the president, it seemed like they're going to do horribly and they end up right. doing horribly. But the generic ballot that year was also very strongly anti-Republican. Now, the divergence is on the generic ballot, which, as 538 point out, is obviously a good measure of how voting is going to go since it directly measures voting as opposed to sort of the more abstract presidential popularity. But one of the things we've seen over the past four midterm cycles is that when things have shifted, you know, that the generic ballot has been a good indicator. When the Democrats are up a lot, they tend to win in, 20, in 2006, 2018. But when it's close it tends to shift hard against the Democrats at the end, which happened in 2014 and happened in um, 
2010? Yes, of course, 2010, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, I mean, 2010, for God's yeah. sake, right? So we're talking about a sample size of four, so I don't want to extrapolate too far outward from here, but I do think there's reason to think that as this gets closer to November, historical patterns suggest that this is going to start going worse for Democrats. The only thing I will say, though, is I think that the Democratic Party has done a good job of inculcating the sense that this is not simply an election uh, of, you know, between Democrats and Republicans vying for who gets to have policy decisions that, are, that they're making, right? That it is an election which is centered more on the actual viability of the United States, right, as an entity. And I think Democrats have done a good job of that. I think you hear a lot of Democrats who are saying, look, you know, do I love Biden? No, I don't. But I think it's really important to keep Republicans out of power. And I think that that is something that, you know, has been accentuated by the January 6th hearings. I think that that's something that's been, you know, accentuated by Biden, obviously putting a focus on it. And so that may mean that a lot of Democrats who don't love Biden, who don't think things are going well, come to the polls anyway, simply because they don't want to have Republicans control the House. I'm skeptical of, of late summer polls, you know, particularly here in the state of Wisconsin. We had a poll out uh, yesterday that was kind of eye opening. I you know, take it with it with a grain of salt. But the one trend that I think is is interesting is the disappearance of the enthusiasm gap. Earlier this year, there was kind of a massive gap right. between the enthusiasm of Republicans to go to the polls and the kind of meh response by Democrats. Uh, according to this Marquette University law poll, Democrats are now as engaged and as enthusiastic as Republicans, which in a state like Wisconsin makes a big difference. And so the more attention on Donald Trump may galvanize Republican voters, but it also seemed to have the effect of galvanizing Democratic voters. Are you seeing the same thing? Yeah, I mean, I think that Democrats would love to have this midterm be a referendum on Trump. And to the extent that they can have that be the case, I think they'd be very enthusiastic about that. You know, I think we also have to get back to one of the most interesting questions in polling, which is how dependent are polling errors on Donald Trump being on the ballot, right? So we yeah. know that there were polling errors. We know mm. that polls have consistently undercounted, particularly the number of whites without college degrees yes. um, and, and underestimated how much they're going to turn out to, to vote. In 2016, that's why people assumed that Hillary Clinton would win. In 2020, that's why people assumed that Biden would have an easier victory than he did. But in 2018, there wasn't an error. In 2018, the polls nailed the generic ballot results. Trump wasn't on the ballot, right? And the people who came out to vote were people energized against Trump. And a lot of the special elections we've seen, like last year in Virginia and New Jersey, we saw a lot of people who were nonetheless motivated to come out. So they were still Trump voters who were motivated to come out, even though Trump wasn't on the ballot. But then you have something like Kansas, where were, you know, people were very motivated to come out and so vote in support of access to abortion in that state on that on the constitutional referendum. So the question, I think, is the, the Wisconsin poll, I think, depends heavily on that issue, on the issue of whether or not Trumpian voters come out to the polls in November. Yes. And I think that that is when we talk about what happened with Mar-a-Lago, I think that, you know, to the extent that something that happens three months before the election has much of an effect, we'll, we'll see. Uh, but if they can preserve that sense on the right that they need that it's important to go to the polls to defend Trump and defend Trumpism and energize Trump voters in that way, then I'm a little more worried about the accuracy of polls and capturing what's going to happen. 
there's also a long history of Republicans, and I'm sure that's true of Democrats as well, but I've been focused more on the Republicans, of, of Republicans blowing very winnable races by being reckless or being extreme. And I, I was struck by a, another result from this Wisconsin poll when they asked people, should abortion be legal in cases of incest or rape? And the numbers are not surprising, but they're still kind of eye-popping. 88% say, yeah, there should be an exception for rape and incest. Among Republicans, 79% yes. Among independents, 87% want an exception for rape and incest. The Republican candidate for governor, and this is going to be a very close race, has said that the State's 1849 ban on abortion that does not include exceptions for rape or incest is an exact mirror of his position. So I don't know, Philip, that seems like it might be a problem for Republicans in states like Wisconsin. Yeah, no, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think that polling has repeatedly shown, even before Dobbs, uh, you know, going back decades, polling has shown that when you ask people, should a woman have the right to an abortion for any reason, that it's about half and half, 50-50, you know, Republicans less likely to say that's the case, or Democrats more likely. When you ask about a specific situation like that, life of the mother, incest and rape, then people overwhelmingly say, yes, then abortion should be legal in those under those circumstances. To the extent that Wisconsin Democrats can make that an issue in a race, I think it benefits them, right? And I think the odds that you hear a lot of campaigning from the Republican candidate saying, you know, let's, let's wind back the clock. I don't think that's likely to happen because I think they're going to recognize that's problematic as well. And, you know, who knows? Positions may moderate between now and Election Day. But yeah, this is this is the bet that a lot of Democrats are hoping pays off, that if they can make this also about abortion access, particularly at the state level where people have control over what happens uh, now that Dobbs has been affected. You know, I, I think that Democrats see that as a winning issue. And therefore, I think you're probably not going to hear a lot about it from the right. So Liz Cheney, let's talk about this for a moment. She lost by nearly 40 points. And actually, I think it was worse than that. I mean, it, it's worse than it looks because there were Democratic crossovers in Wyoming. So you wonder, what was the margin among actual Republicans, which would, again, be a pretty good indication of uh, the fact that that an anti-Trump Republican like Liz Cheney has no constituency, really, or a very minimal constituency in her own party. And yet she's made no secret uh, with her defiant concession speech that she's thinking of running for president, which right. on by some analysis is a ludicrous idea, right? I mean, there's no chance that she is going to win nationally against Donald Trump when she can barely muster, you know, 30 percent of Republican votes in, in her home state of, of Wyoming. And yet she seems to understand that. She seems to think, though, that I can draw this red line. So what do you think about Liz Cheney 2024, which is on one level crazy, on another level um, going to be really quite a show. I mean, it's going to be a hell of a ride, right? right. I mean, even a, even a kamikaze attack is a hell of a ride. It ends badly, but <laughs> wow. it is not boring, right? <laughs> no, this is true. So here's the challenge. I get where Liz Cheney's coming from. And all things being equal, you know, the idea of Liz Cheney being on the debate stage with Donald Trump would be fascinating. But Liz Cheney is almost certainly not going to be on the debate stage with Donald Trump because all things are not equal, right? Look what happened in 2020. 
right? Yeah. The Republican Party went out of its way to clear the path for Donald Trump. I'm not saying they're going to do that again because you know, now they actually have a contested con- uh, convention. But there was they went out of their way to downplay those sorts of fissures. The party's not the Republican Party is not going to want to have that be the case. They may have DeSantis, and you know they they may set a whatever bar it happens to be. So you have you know DeSantis up there and a Pence up there, and you have Trump up there, and you have you know even Nikki Haley, and you have Ted Cruz, and you have a, a group of candidates, but not someone who's throwing bombs at the party, right? And Fox News, you know, Newsmax, One America, whoever it happens to be, their coverage is going to be different of an outsider, Liz Cheney, look how corrupt and damaged the Republican Party has been by embracing Trump. That's not something that they're going to elevate either. And so the question for me is less the political path than it is the communications path. How does Liz Cheney even get her message out besides being on Twitter and having it amplified by people who are skeptical of Donald Trump and who are mostly talking to themselves anyway instead of actual Trump supporters. How does that happen? I, I don't know. And I think the Republican Party is going to do everything in its power to make sure it doesn't. Well, I completely agree with you. I did my, my newsletter today saying, you know, predictions are scary, but there is absolutely no way the RNC will ever allow that Liz Cheney to be on a, a debate stage right. with Donald Trump. And yeah. Ron Brownstein has a great piece in The Atlantic where he talks about this. She will have a platform, though, because she does have high name recognition. Um, and I think that the reason she would run for president is so that she would continue to have that platform and that microphone. And I am thinking about what happened in 2020, where the RNC was so blatant in clearing the way for Trump. They canceled primaries. They canceled right. caucuses. They, they didn't even have a platform. And when Joe Walsh and Bill Weld, you know, God bless them, um, you know, complained about it, they barely got any audience whatsoever. I think it would be different with Liz Cheney when they won't let Liz Cheney on the ballot or they won't let Liz Cheney because she won't go quietly and she will have a bigger platform. And I don't know this will make a difference in Republican primaries, but as a kamikaze attack to damage Donald Trump's electability in a general election, it could be a factor. I mean, and that's the thing that that's the big question. Your colleague, Aaron Blake, went through all the reasons why it, this is not going to happen. She cannot possibly win, but she could draw blood. And I think Trump world knows that. Yes. I mean, look, going back to your point about all of us being very cautious and making hard yeah. and fast predictions. Yeah, she could. You're you're right. But I, I would also say this. Liz Cheney has a big platform now. She has a big platform now in the House. She has a big platform now because she was running for re-election. She has a big platform now because of the committee. But in two years' time, right, I, you know, is that the case? I guess not two years, one and a half years' time. You know, in one and a half years' time, she, like Weld, will be a former politician, right? Who knows what she's going to be doing? What 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 does that platform look like? I, I'm not sure. You know, I think she'll probably still have a bigger audience than Weld did in 2020. But, you know, I think that estimating what her platform looks like in 18 months, based on where she is now, I think is probably a little risky. Well, I think it's a good point to make how quickly our memories fade and how quickly things change and how long a year and a half is. Philip Bump, thank you so much for joining me today. Philip Bump is a national correspondent for The Washington Post. Thank you for coming back on the podcast. Appreciate it very much. Of course. Always happy to. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.